0: Good morning, good to see you this morning, make sure I've got all the stuff turned on that's supposed to be on, all right, I do, well I'm glad to see you this morning, I had so many people contact me and say, oh, I'm so sorry, you're preaching and I'm going to be out of town, I'm thinking, yeah, right, (laughs) I'm used to that, it's okay. I was thinking, hey, you know what? This will be really cool. We'll gather and we'll have a small community group meeting. So I'm really glad to see those of you who are here. I, I really, I do take it personally. <laughs> Pastor Ken mentioned my family. Notice I sat by myself. <laughs> they also left. <laughs> my wife called me and said, "Hey, babe, I love you. Praying for you this morning as she was driving in the mountains of Pennsylvania." So. Uh, good to see you this morning. I hope that as we gather together, that you are celebrating first and foremost that this is the Lord's day. This is the day the Lord hath made, we'll what? Rejoice and be glad, and that is speaking of a specific day, a very, very difficult day, a day that is hard, and if we can rejoice in that day, we can rejoice in every day, but in particular, we gather on the first day of the week to celebrate the fact of what we just sang that he is our rock and he is our redeemer and that he has conquered the grave and death and risen again. I bring you greetings from Pastor Sam. Uh, this week was scheduled for him before all of the events that transpired in leading them to be our pastor. And he actually is doing a really cool thing as an emissary of our church. Uh, There's a man, Pastor Innes, who has pastored in San Francisco for, I'm not sure how many years he's been there, but a faithful servant of God. And uh, this weekend, he is transitioning into retirement out of the pastorate, and he asked if Pastor Sam would come and be there on this weekend to preach and to help the church walk through all of that. And so that's where he is, and uh, he told me to send his greetings to you and uh, to let you know that, that He loves you and He's so excited about what God is doing in His life and in the life of our church, and now in particular that the two are becoming one. As Pastor Ken mentioned, take your Bibles and turn with me this morning, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We read the passage together. We're going to focus on what is actually the, the second pericope or, or, or thought content passage in this, this passage. I'm thankful that we read the, the whole thing because it, it does set a context. It deals with those who are going to shepherd the church, lead the church, feed the church, administrate the church, and it sets a, a mindset uh, over the, the importance of the church uh, in this passage of Scripture, and, and that is so important. Because it's actually some of the thoughts that I want to share from you as we look really at the second half of of verse 5 and then following on down to what I believe is the the end of the passage. Again, Peter writes to his audience, clothe yourselves, and I I love the imagery there. Uh, we, we, We know this imagery, Paul uses this imagery with regard to our sanctification of putting on and putting off, and it's actually a, a, a change, not just in my attire as we think of attire, it, it actually is a change of, 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 of who I am. The idea to clothe is, it's now becoming part of my identity, and thus this, this idea of clothing yourself uh, with humility and make it part of who you are with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it, it sets a, a tone of heart in this passage of Scripture. And even as we look at the thoughts that are in this passage, that, that we come with a, a heart that is humbled before God, that recognizes what needs to happen in my life, God needs to do. And notice where he goes from there, and, and this is Very familiar text of Scripture to us. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, verse 6, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're living in interesting days, aren't we? It's easy to look at those days and to be overwhelmed, to feel a sense of impending doom. What's going to break next? What is the next piece of the spiral? I recently did a, a, a radio interview, and the man that I was interviewing, he was interviewing me um, on the radio, introduced the, the segment where we were going to talk, and, and he introduced it by talking about the days in which we're living as dominoes. How many of you actually have ever played the game dominoes? Anybody ever played the game? Yeah, for years and years and years, I didn't even know it was a game. I just thought they were cool, you know, rectangles that you set up. <laughs> and that's really the the illustration of 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 dominoes using it's not the game. It's actually you set them up and you hit one and off it goes and it's this incredible chain, and you know. The internet's just really cool. Thinking even through that, I go out and say, oh, let me go. And some of the things people do with dominoes are, like, unbelievable. Like, there's people that have set up their whole morning routine. They get up in the morning, they hit something, and, it, like, the dominoes do everything in their house, including their shower. But he was talking about the fact that, like, you know, the one thing happened, and all of a sudden there's all these, these domino effects that are, that are happening. And sometimes we can be just like living life, waiting for the next domino to fall. Like, like, what's coming next? There's this impending sense of doom. You watch the news, and I think really that's all they're trying to do. They're prophets of, of gloom and doom because it sells. How many of you have ever watched the Weather Channel? Like, does anybody just on a regular day when the weather's beautiful say, ah, I got some free time. I think I'll sit and watch the Weather Channel. Anybody do that? Good. There's no hands. I'm really, I was afraid someone's going to raise your hand. How many of you, when you know there's a big storm coming, happen to watch the Weather Channel? Yeah, like, it is the highest rated show on cable TV, right? We all know the weather guys' names because they, like, go stand in the middle of a hurricane like some kind of superhero. I live in coastal North Carolina, and like, we would watch the weather channel until the power went out. It's like, I think it's close now. Yeah, you know, so why? Because bad news sells, right? You know, there's a storm somewhere all the time, like somewhere there's a storm, and the weather channel's there. It's amazing to me. And so it's easy to have this sense of impending doom and thus look on the circumstances of our day and assume that they are filled with chaos. And I'm here to tell you this morning, there's somebody that wants us to see the circumstances of life exactly that way. But I want you to stop for a moment and maybe think about them in a different way. I think we are living in incredible days. I believe that the church of God is living with the most legitimate gospel opportunity that we have had presented to her since the Reformation. In case you don't know, the Reformation was a pretty big deal. You say, how in the world could I ever say that? Don't I know what's going on in the world? Don't you see when you watch the news, like the the ever-present shadow and encroaching movement of secularism, the world doesn't want God. The the world doesn't want morality. The world doesn't want the church. Stop for a moment. Let me ask you a question. Can you go back through history and tell me a time when they did? So think with me for a moment. When was the last time that our planet was fully aware of circumstances that captured the, the attention of the entire globe. One of our problems as the church is just the fact that we struggle in a day that is so filled with pervasive entertainment, so filled with pervasive distraction, that we just have a hard time getting anybody to listen. The world is listening. When was the last time the church was made aware of the fact that the entire globe felt vulnerable and helpless? When was the last time that all the peoples of the world were made keenly aware that the normal sources of help, comfort, rescue, and security, government, money, military, science, None of those things could come to the rescue. You seen the little commercials? Talk about, this is our shot. Seen that? And I'm not here to have a debate over vaccines. But they're desperately looking for some source of hope. Anybody here that did get the vaccine? Don't raise any hands, whatever, and I'll just put it, I got it. Anybody here feel like I got my vaccine now? That's my hope. The world doesn't even feel that. That's why we said, now get your vaccine and still wear your mask for a long time. When was the last time when the entire world was made painfully aware that the normal pathways of escape amusement, pleasure, intoxication, adrenaline, That all of those normal sources of escape when life is going badly couldn't even distract us from the reality that is all around us. The world is sitting, watching, hopeless. So I ask you this question, what is God's answer to that? You take that and you add it to the day in which we live. I don't put a lot of stock in generationalism, but I think it forms for us at least some categories by which we can think about what's going on in culture. I don't think God in particular is overly concerned with generationalism. He made people in His image, and they've been in His image since the day He made them. But there is something to the impact that circumstances in our culture has in forming the thinking of particular groups of people. And I think it's wise for us to understand that. So, we are living in an interesting day. Right now, for the first time in history, in many families, there are five generations living Workplaces experiencing uh, an interesting phenomenon due to extended life periods as well as to the, the idea that generations on the front end are changing more quickly, our workplaces are encountering the impact of six generations working at once. It's never happened in history. And you know what we're finding? People have a hard time getting along. Gen Z is our most recent generation until the pandemic hit, and we're wondering kind of where we're at. It's really interesting. Generations are typically not marked just by years. They're marked actually by some form of major event that so impacted a group of people and the life circumstances that they are facing that it formulates the way they respond and thus the decisions that they make. So world wars tend to be that way. Global pandemics tend to be that way. Gen Z is really interesting. They actually are fighting to own the pandemic. Like, they don't want the pandemic to be that event that ended their generation and began a new one. They want it to be theirs. Like, no, 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 that, that's ours. And I think part of the reason uh, for that is when when a generation changes, and the next one actually is going to be Gen Alpha, that's what it'll be. We're going back to A, so it'll be Gen Alpha, Then the generation that comes before it tends to move from being what it was to a nickname. And Gen Z really doesn't want to change because their nickname already, and they're fighting it, is Zoomers. They do not want to be Zoomers. So they're fighting to own the pandemic so the generation doesn't change. But part of that is because they want to say, you know what, it didn't destroy us. It didn't end us. We managed that. And that's really much the mindset of Gen Z. Four characteristics that tend to mark Gen Z are are, are interesting things. First of all, Gen Z is striving in life to do things in such a way that it helps them to have clear identity. Who am I? I'm I'm not just the child of my parents. I'm not just the product of my culture. I'm not just identified by my career. I have an identity. Secondly, then, they pursue things in life that clearly help them in maturity. What I'm doing is not just a pastime. It's not just something I do. I don't just have a cool hobby. I don't just go to work. What I am doing is actually shaping me. I see that I am becoming who I'm supposed to be through the things that I am doing. The third thing is community. They long to fit in with a group that actually helps shape their identity and develops their community. They don't just want a group of friends. They don't just want to be in a crowd. They definitely don't want to be identified by a group of people that all look the same, act the same, behave the same, and believe the same. But they want to be in a group that actually is a part of shaping them. And they are shaping others and that they, they together are becoming something. And the last thing then is interesting. It is synergy. They don't just want to do something great. They want to do something greater than they could otherwise do by themselves because they do it with others. Synergy. Not just energy. We work together and we do. They want synergy that through two we actually accomplish more than anyone can accomplish by themselves. And this is what drives Gen Z. They're looking for those things in life. If you're in Gen Z and you don't believe that, great. You don't have to. Again, I don't think God puts a lot of stock in generationalism, but he does in individuals and who they are. But think about those four things for a moment, and think about what the scriptures say. Where is our identity to be found? In Jesus Christ. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly love of Jesus Christ at the cross. Think about maturity. Think about what God is doing in our lives. That he is working together all the circumstances of life for our good. That he who has begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That we are being transformed from glory to glory by the working of God in our lives. God is about taking his people from spiritual infancy and growing them in the likeness of Jesus Christ. God is using all of life to mature us. Think about community. Think about what the latter part of Romans 12 says about us being in a culture and and thinking rightly and having our minds transformed by the word of God and not being conformed to the world. And the rest of the chapter talks about our lives and our gifts in the community of the church. Community. God provided it. And lastly, synergy. Think about the Great Commission for a moment. We look at a culture like we're living in today and we think to ourselves, what in the world can I do? And Jesus says, without me you can do nothing. But he said to a ragtag group of 12 men who were panicked because he was leaving. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. You go because of that power, therefore and preach the gospel to all nations. He said, you be witnesses for me. Where? Jerusalem. Think about that for a minute. They had just killed Jesus. Ah, can't we go somewhere else, Lord? No, no. that's where you're going to go. That's where you're going to start. Jerusalem. Judea, the province. Samaria. What? Like, we walk around that. Like, we we don't even go there. But, But Jesus did and met a woman at a well. Remember that? In the uttermost parts of the earth, and you know what? At the end of one generation, the gospel was being preached in the known world. Synergy. So that brings us to this passage of Scripture. And as we look at it, I want you to see kind of the, the structure of the passage. It's, it's what we would call chiastic. That's a, a literary device that helps us gain the proper understanding of the passage and so what do I mean by that you'll find parallel thoughts that move from the outside to the inside and bring you then to a central thought which I believe we find at verse 9 so notice from the outside you'll notice the passage begins and ends with God that's a great way to start and end the parallel thoughts move towards the middle and then come to verse 9 which says resist him Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And that's a verse that we need to keenly understand, to understand this passage. So, as you look there, I really want you to see just some simple thoughts. I want you to see two acting agents. Verse 8, your adversary, the devil. Verse 10, the God of all grace. And in the middle, I want you to see an arena, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood noticed throughout the world. In the world it comes from the word cosmo, cosmos, meaning the place where human beings and animals live. One author said it this way, it is the system of practices and standards associated with secular society. It is the sum total of everything here and now, the world the orderly universe, the system of human existence in its many aspects, you put it all together, it's life as we know it. It is how we live, where we live. It is what we experience in the place where we live. So what you find is the arena of life, everyday life, the life I live when I get up in the morning. And I go through my routine, and I go to work, and and I have to repair my car. Or worse, you have to repair your daughter's car when she's on vacation. That's just a personal testimony. It's life. It's just the stuff of life. It's everyday life. It's not some super, it's not like that one day whenever you go to the amusement park and like, that's life. No, no, that's not life. And every one of us know it. It's the everyday life, the arena where I will live day in, day out, live out my faith in a work world. And there, in that life, there are two acting agents with two very different designs for how the affairs of life should impact you. One of them desires misery, and the other desires mission. They're polar opposite desires. Paul is right or Peter is writing to an audience here that was experiencing life. I won't go into a lot of the details, but I think we know the setting, first Peter, he's writing in some form to exiles. And the word is there intentionally because, because of some kind of circumstances in life, they had to flee. Their everyday normal routine of life, their jobs, their homes, the stuff they did was radically impacted. Anybody feel like everything in your life has been impacted? So Peter is writing to them because that's the circumstances they find themselves in. They are dislocated, and they're living in a world that feels like it has been turned upside down. So Peter is probably writing somewhere about 64. We know Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in 70. I think that is the fiery trial that he speaks of future that is coming for them. In other words, it's going to get worse. But in the midst of what they are dealing with, we we know like in a sense they, they didn't have the news, praise God for them, they, they didn't have the internet, that probably was a good thing too. But they, they, they know through word of mouth and what is happening that colossal things are happening. So they're not hearing necessarily of everyday Christians dying, but they are hearing of what is happening in the world. So 60 approximately, Paul is arrested for the first time and spends from 60 to 62 in prison. Somewhere 63 or so, James is put to death. We know that somewhere in 64, both Peter, the author of this book, and Paul are put to death. When they know of those things happening, they're assuming if they're getting those guys, the church is on fire. And so Peter is writing to them. And he's writing about life and how we should be responding. So I want us to see a few things. As we talk about recognition that is necessary for us to grow spiritually, the recognition that's necessary for sanctification, and I want us to see, first of all, that we need to recognize that we have an adversary. We need to recognize that we have an adversary. As we contemplate that, I want us to, to look, first of all, at the recognition. Know who He is and as we do that, I, I don't want to take us on a diatribe of studying angelology or even demonology or studying Satan himself. The Bible says lots about him. I really want to stay in this text and say, what, okay, what does Peter say about him here? That's important. And I want you to see, first of all, that Peter identifies his character. Peter identifies his character. Let's see where I'm at. There we go. The recognition. Peter identifies his character. What does Peter say that he is like? Notice, first of all, he is identified by his animosity. Who is this guy? He's your adversary. That's, that's how he introduces him. Imagine if somebody walked up to you after service this morning and said, Hi, I wanted to introduce you to Alan. He's your adversary. What? Like what? What? This is how he. So they, they obviously are familiar somehow with the working of Satan and what he does, and he wants them clearly to understand that, that he is their adversary. He is identified by his animosity. He is an antagonist. The word that Peter uses here is an, an opponent, one whose primary purpose is to come against, one whose purpose is not productive but destructive. The intention is to disable. He is bent against us as. An opponent. You know, I wish I could say to you that in the struggles of life and with the battle with your own flesh, at least you start on neutral ground, but you don't. We are living in a world where there is someone who is our adversary and he is hell bent against you living for God. You know what that means? You cannot start to pursue God and be passive. No one will become more like Jesus Christ by osmosis. Like you don't just say, Ah, you know what, I grow spiritually when I sleep. It actually is an active process because there is someone who is actively an antagonist against you. But secondly, I want you to see that he is an accuser. He uses the name here, Diabolos. One who is slanderous, one who accuses falsely. Our enemy is not merely desiring to frustrate us or to make us miserable. He wants to devour, to devastate. Jesus stated it another way. He said this in John 10.10, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. He's one who is marked by animosity, and he does it in a way that he is an accuser. Do you know when things become chaotic in life, there is someone who enters the relationships of life and points his finger at those around you who God intends to build you up and drives you from them? You know, there's some of you sitting here this morning, you're young people, and right now, because of what is going on in life and the responses to it, you go to your room and you sit and you listen to a voice that sounds very much like yours, that is accusing those who love you. Your parents don't love you. They're just out to get you. Like, they are looking for every opportunity they can find to belittle you. That's what they're after. And when you think they're actually doing something nice for you, like your parents, they provide a vehicle for you to drive. It doesn't take very long that you figure out that they had other motives. They actually just want you to be a chauffeur. Like, they used to have to go to the store at 10 o'clock at night to get milk, and now you're having to drive to the store at 10 o'clock at night to get milk. They don't love you. You never stop to think about the fact that they want milk for your breakfast. Like, He's an accuser. There's some of you sitting here this morning. Because of what is going on, you found yourselves in much closer proximity than, than you ever thought you might. Like, he's working from home. You're home. And the first thought was, oh, this will be so cool. But about six months in, it's kind of like, what, what are you doing here? Like, you're messing up my routine. You found yourself in close proximity. Because of that, now you begin to question each other's motives. You look at each other and you say, like, "We've been married a long time. Do you, do you, have you always done that?" He's accusing those in spiritual authority. He's causing us to accuse those that really don't have an agenda but We see an agenda and we assign it to them. Anybody find yourself living in days and somehow you are overcome with this sense of skepticism about everything? Like have you ever really questioned the motives of the girl at the drive-thru when she got your order wrong? And somehow you drive away and think, I could see it in her eyes that she wasn't going to make my cheeseburger right. He's not just identified by his animosity. He's identified by his activity. His activity. Look at what Peter says in this passage of Scripture. He prowls about as a roaring lion. Why does he say that? Usually I just, wow, he's a lion. That's enough for me. Like, I get it. Lions are hungry. He's on the prowl. I don't want to be prey. But he says something very unique here that he's prowling about as a roaring lion. I was teaching in Zambia, and um, I had the opportunity to go out for dinner with a couple. And the lady actually grew up more in a jungle area. So I'm in Zambia at all. I'm thinking jungle. And she grew up in the jungle from there. And so, fascinating, we're sitting at supper, so I started asking questions about where she lived and how she grew up and how things work and that sort of thing. And, and it was fascinating to me. Uh, her family group had a, a, a piece of property that, that basically was where they lived. It was in kind of a, a bend in the river. Uh, on purpose because it provided a water source for them and it provided protection from one side for them. Just a number of reasons. But she mentioned interestingly that she was the only person in her family that couldn't swim. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Why couldn't you swim? She said, it's because of my job. I thought, well, what kind of job did you have that kept you from learning to swim? She said, well, my job was to sit on the bank and watch for crocodiles while everybody else swam. And I thought, wow, like... They really trusted you, number one. Number two, if someone had to sit on the bank and watch for crocodiles, the one thing I know I'm not doing is going swimming. Like, just, I would be the second member of your family that couldn't swim because I'm not going in. But she mentioned then the time of the year when the lions would come. She said they knew for days in advance that the lions were coming because at night, miles away, you could hear the lions roaring. And the day would come when her father would gather everybody in. They would take everything in the house and move it against the one door in their house. So think now, you know, built in the jungle, thatch roof. The walls aren't going to be very strong. And so they move everything against the door. And she described, and you could see the terror in her eyes, sitting inside at night as the lions would walk around the house and roar. And she said it was so loud that you actually could feel it inside you. So how loud is a lion's roar? 114 decibels. Say, oh, wow, I've always wanted to know that. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it meant about as much to me, too. I don't know what one decibel is. So 114, it's not overly impressive to me. How many of you mow your lawn? Anybody? How many of you mow your lawn with a push mower? Yeah. Me, too, because my tractor's broken so and then, you know, I've said, hey, you know what? That's really good exercise for you. So there went the motivation for getting it fixed. But a lion's roar is about 25 times louder than your gas-powered push lawnmower and can be heard over five miles away. So a passenger car driving by is about 60 decibels. A jackhammer, anybody here a jackhammer? Chainsaw? Now I'm appealing to all the men. That's about 100 decibels. So a lion is loud. Great, that changed my life, Alan. Praise God. So why does the lion roar? So I had this impression, you know, he's the king of the jungle. I've seen Simba. So what he does is he he gets up there and he says to everybody, I'm the king of the world! No, he doesn't. That's not why lions roar. They don't want to waste the energy. I know, after he hunts and he captures his prey and he's got the kill, then he roars to say, look, I did it. No, no, that's not why he roars. He just eats when he kills. It's actually old lions that tend to roar. And they go strategically and place themselves... So that as a herd is fleeing, they roar and they actually direct where the herd is going. And they direct them to the young hunters. A roaring lion is a terrorist. He is using fear to control behavior. So think about the fact that we're going to talk about the arena of life, the everyday circumstances of life, the things that are happening in the world where we live and how we live and there is someone who is prowling about looking for someone to devour and Peter says of him, he is a roaring lion. He is interjecting fear into the culture to control our behavior. You see, there's a tension between fear and faith. Terror and trust are mutual enemies. One is always trying to drive the other away. And we're living in a culture where news is pervasive and fear sells. And so the roaring of the lion and the speculation about life and about motives actually is promoting his agenda. The lion is roaring with the deafening sounds of a global pandemic. He's roaring with the quaking sounds of political revolution. He is roaring with the roar of social upheaval. And if we're not careful, we're listening. And we're responding. We are so easily gripped by fear. As it grips our hearts, we're guided by fear. And many of the choices that we make are a response to fear. Where we go, what we do, how we respond, what we say, what we think. And he who controls your fears controls your mind. And he who controls your mind controls your behavior. And there are some of you who right now are making life choices based on fear. Interestingly, there are two responses to fear. I think you know them. They are flight and fight. And there's many of you that are looking at the culture and you're in flight. It's like, they don't want the truth. They don't want God. They don't want me. They don't want the church. Fine! But there are many of you that are responding with that fight mechanism Because you see, the primary response to fear is not necessarily just to withdraw. It actually is just the opposite. It is anger. It is to become aggressive. Think about it for a moment. A young mom walks out of the house. She looks towards the street. And there she sees her infant toddler about to wander into the street. And there's a car coming down the road. What does that young mother do? Sweetie. Come to mama. Can you feel it in your soul? My family is gone. We have a nine-month little hellion puppy. (laughs) And I love him. His name is Milo. He is a mini Bernadoodle, which means as bad as he is, he's really cute. And he's too small to be on our in-ground invisible fence that my big dog is on. And so he taunts my big dog all the time. It knows how far it can go, and Milo always goes a little further. I'm tempted while my wife is away to put him on it just to see what would happen. But I think he's too small. I think he would, like, jump when he... But anyway, I do love him. He really is cute. But Milo likes to go to the road. And he has zero clue what's up there on the road. So I'm working on my daughter's car. I got it all working for her, and I actually waxed it. I'm waxing the car. Milo's outside, and I turn around, and Milo's about to go on the road in front of the UPS truck. That would be an ugly scene. So I didn't go, hey, Milo. Come here, Milo. Want a treat? You know what I did. I won't do it because I got a microphone on. Milo! At least Milo stopped. He didn't come back. In fact, he didn't come back the rest of the day. Anytime I walked to him, he kind of like ran away. But fear, it grips your heart and you get angry. That's what comes out. There's this anger, and anger's not always sinful. In fact, it's a heightened state of emotion given by God whereby I might accomplish more good than I otherwise would. That's anger. A heightened state of emotion given by God whereby I might accomplish more good than I otherwise would. That's anger but it can be sinful. And there are many of you that intentionally sit down at night and turn on the TV to get an extra dose of anger. You turn on the news and you sit there because you want them to tell you how awful the world is and how bad people are and all the agendas they have and the motives that they're living by so that you can get really good and angry before you go to bed. Say, that's not what I do. It is what you do. It may not be why you do it, but it is what you do so that you're ready for the next day to just really go out and embrace people that need Christ. There are some of you that it's affecting the way you live every day. If we got honest and we sat for a while by ourselves and contemplated our own soul, we would ask ourselves, oh my soul, why are you so angry? And sometimes we don't know, but it's because we're living with this weight of this impending sense of chaos and the next domino to fall. And I'm telling you that you are listening to somebody and he's roaring like a lion and it's paralyzing you. And in his roar, he's an accuser and it's causing you to look with skepticism on everything around you. And he's an antagonist. And if you're honest, you would say, my walk with God hasn't gotten better. So then look at the arena. Because it's life. And so we need to recognize our circumstances. Recognize our circumstances. What they are. He uses the word affliction in verse 9, a state of great suffering and distress due to adversity. Notice Peter and the authors of Scripture don't make light of life. Aren't you glad that Peter doesn't write and say, come on, dude, it's not that bad. He doesn't do like the, 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 the fatherly apostle thing. You think it's bad. We had to walk uphill to Jerusalem both ways. Like he, he, doesn't, he doesn't make light of life. He actually deals with what life is. Life is filled with trials. It is filled with difficulty. We do suffer. Life is hard. It is not good therapy to make light of it. But there's something else, and it's not just what the circumstances of life are, but there's something to them. Why They are what they are. And notice in the middle of this verse, he he says an interesting thing. I'm in verse 9 knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This idea of experience there actually is the word to be accomplished, to be or become successfully completed or put into effect, to finish something begun, to bring about a result according to a plan or objective, completing, accomplishing, performing, and bringing about. It actually is in the passive voice. So it signifies that the subject is being acted upon. A verb in the passive voice with God as the stated or implied agent is referred to as a divine passive. So let me illustrate for you. You know well, I've mentioned it already. This verse from Romans chapter 8, that all things work together for good. Stop. Do all things work together for good? The answer is no, they don't. There's a divine passive in that passage, and it is this. We all assume it, that God is working all things together for good. Go look at the verse. He's not stated there. It's a divine passage with the assumption that the circumstances of life aren't good. God is working them together for good. That's actually the the device that's being used here. That what is being accomplished, what is being completed, what is being carried out with a plan and with a purpose is being done to all the brotherhood in the world. Which, by the way, I think that's Peter's expression for capturing the church. It's being accomplished by God on purpose with purpose. The same circumstances you are living, the same news that's on at night, The same pandemic that you're experiencing. The same work uh, atmosphere change that's driving you to home. Maybe causing you to question whether or not you'll go back to work. The social upheaval that's taking place in the world. The fact that you might be facing different political agendas than what you're used to facing. Or that you thought you would face after the last election. All of those circumstances the ones that the lion roars over and drives skepticism into your heart. God is acting in that same arena and he is using those sufferings to accomplish something, to perfect something in his church. That's the center of this passage. God has a plan. God has A purpose. The question is, in the midst of the circumstances of life, who are you listening to? So notice, the one adversary, we're called to have a response to him. Peter's really clear. We're to be sober, clear-minded, and vigilant alert. So maybe this is just a moment to stop and say, whoa, 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 whoa. I've been thinking all wrong about the circumstances. I haven't seen this as a gospel opportunity. At least if I look at the last 10 months and how I've been acting, I haven't acted like it's been a gospel opportunity. If I think about my conversation with my unsaved co-workers. If I find any common ground with them, it usually is that we both moan and groan. Like, they say it's really bad, and what I do is say, yeah, yeah, it really is really bad. And you know what? I watch Fox News, so I can tell you more about how bad it is. Like, I have become an expert on how bad it is. Have a great day. Be sober. It's time to clear your thinking. If you will, wake up. Awake to righteousness, for some have not the knowledge of God, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Be vigilant. This is going to take you getting active. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. I got to think now. What is true? What is real? Because it's really easy to assign a a motive to the girl at the window at the drive-thru and drive away knowing... I'm probably never going back to McDonald's again. If I do, probably not when she's working. But when that person shares a bed with you, shares a house with you, is raising kids with you, is paying bills with you, and they do something and you have this conversation that goes on in your head and they've got agendas that you know, if you, just, if you just actually stop and think for a moment, they are not that smart. Like, they couldn't have thought up that, but you've got it assigned to them. Stop for a moment and ask yourself, what really is true? And then Peter says, resist him. And the resistance is unique. He says, resist in the faith or in your faith. Texts translate this differently, and I think because of the fact that they do, they're struggling with the fact that the text actually is saying both. It is both personal and applicational. Yes, there's this personal belief, your faith, but it's based in something, the faith. And every time the word faith in the New Testament is preceded by the definite article, it is referring to a once-for-all body of truth delivered to the saints. It is the word of God. It's not what I think or my personal belief. It is belief that rests in an authoritative word of God. And so he is saying, yes, you need to build yourself up in your faith because you fill yourself with the word of God. Resisting isn't, all right, Satan, bring it on. Let's go, buddy. I'm ready for you. I know you're out there. It actually is, remember where this passage started. Humble yourself and say, God, I cannot fight this fight alone. I'll never think rightly about life and its circumstances on my own. I'll never navigate this by myself. God, I need truth and I need you to show me the truth. And it drives you to the Word of God. That's how you resist Him. Interesting, isn't it? We're told if we resist Him, He'll flee. You actually think that if you stand and say, Satan, bring it on, buddy, let's go, that Satan's not going to say, oh, yeah, let's go. Like, he's not going to look at you and say, yeah, I don't want any of that. But think about what we see in Scripture whenever the word of God shows up. I think sometimes we think about, you know, I got to get the word of faith, and if I get the word of faith out there, it'll drive Satan out and all of that. You know what? I just think if you get the word in, it'll keep Satan away. He's repelled by the authority of God and the authority of God is given to us in the authoritative word of God. Fill your heart with the word of God and that is the active process of resisting Satan who wants to distort your thinking. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy law. Your word have I treasured up in my heart so that I might not sin against thee. But this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Whom resists steadfast in your faith? And then lastly, I want us to look at the third agent, and that is we need to recognize our God. We need to recognize His immense power, And his immeasurable grace. Notice this passage ends with God. I love this. (laughs) Verse 10 And after you have suffered a little while. He's just described life with sufferings that are being shared throughout life by the church. He actually is capturing all of life. After you've suffered a little while. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore. Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. At the beginning of this passage. We are reminded in verse 6 that we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. That we are to look at a pandemic that we are to look at our personal circumstances, that we are to look at the chaos culturally, that we are to look at social upheaval, and we are to stop for a moment and say, Oh God, I acknowledge the fact that you are omnipotent. This world is not spiraling out of control. Yes, I am seeing the evidence of the fact that it is in complete rebellion to you, But you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And God, I am not going to live my life in the arena of life in response to the affairs of life. I am not going to live in this life in response to the fear of a roaring lion. God, today I am going to choose that whatever life brings, I will acknowledge that you are God. Therefore, I don't have the latitude because of what's going on in life to say, well, what do you expect? No, I didn't obey God, but God could not expect me to do that in light of this. Like, I know what's going on in his heart. I know why he's doing what he's doing. I know why he said what he is saying. So at some point, I have to be justified in giving him the cold shoulder. Like, isn't that spiritual? I didn't snap back. Well, what does God say? You say, you know what, God. I'm going to acknowledge your authority, your immense power. And that doesn't just mean I'm going to bite my lower lip and take some kind of a gloom and doom approach. So I guess this is just how I have to live. That's not acknowledging the sovereignty of God or the power of God. It is actually a faith that says, God, I will do right and trust you for the circumstances and the outcome. God, I'll do right. And with joy in my heart, I'll rest in the fact that you will care for me. More than I could ever gain if I took matters into my own hands. His immense power, but then secondly, his immeasurable grace. Notice, he is called the God of all grace. What a name for our God. Divine provision whereby God provides for his own in such a way that they cannot and therefore should not take the credit. That's grace. Grace, divine provision, whereby God provides for his own in such a way that they cannot and therefore should not take the credit. God, you know what? You're the God of all grace, and I am going to trust in you to do for me beyond that which I could ever do for myself. God, I'm not going to hunker down. I'm not going to shelter down. I'm not going to can all I get because I got all I could get. and Hang on till the end. God, I'm going to trust you to live for you. Believing that you will do for me more than I could ever do for myself. That's grace. He is a God of immeasurable grace. He's a God, thirdly, of intimate care. Intimate care. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore. God sees you. God knows you. God cares for you. So let's look at that little phrase that is so common to us that often we quote, quote casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. That is not an expression of let go and let God, not in this context. It actually is an acknowledgement of who God is and that God is good and that with abandonment I take those circumstances in life that everything in me is fighting to want to manage and I say, God, I'm going to trust you enough to obey you and I know you care for me. So look at the end of this passage. Roaring lion, destabilizing, causing panic, wanting people to run around angry and skeptical. And notice what this passage says God does in the very same circumstances. Using the same tools, He Himself will restore. And I think the next three words are actually explanations of that one truth. That he'll confirm, and he'll strengthen, and he'll establish you. So you sit here this morning, and you're feeling it. Question marks. God's plan is the church, right? And what happens? We go through 10 months where the church isn't even allowed to assemble. You think, ooh, what's going on? So maybe you approach God and you say, oh God, please let us get back to church. You get back to church and God says, yes, I've got a message for you. Your pastor's leaving. What? So there's some of you who are just saying, you know, it's too much for me. I haven't been here that much anyway. I've been out, been remote, pastor's leaving, We're talking about buildings. I don't, I, just, I don't think I want to go through all of that. It might be that that's what God's doing in your life, but I would caution you today. Who are you listening to? Why are you running? More importantly, where are you running to? God, in the circumstances of life, Wants to use suffering to refine you and make you like Jesus. God is saying to all of us in this moment, this is a time to stop and think, to clear our head, be sober, and to get actively engaged in thinking. And what is it we need to think about? Where's my identity? Is it in my job? Is it in my marriage? Is it in my parenting? Maybe this is a time for me to stop and really wrestle through my place in the gospel and be reassured in my heart that he will hold me fast. My identity is in Christ and no matter what happens in a culture in crisis, they can't change that. And maybe I need to stop and say, whoa, 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 whoa. I have been looking at what's being being done to me. Instead of what is being accomplished in me. I've been asking the wrong questions and it's made me angry. Instead of looking and saying, okay, God, what are you doing in me? Because I need to be pursuing maturity. How am I becoming more of what God intends for me to be? Thirdly, community. Think you're the only one hurting? Maybe we're sitting in an auditorium with people who need to be reaffirmed in their faith. Maybe we're sitting next to somebody right now. Maybe you have a spouse and what they need is somebody to remind them of the goodness and the grace and the glory and the power of their God. See, that's community. And maybe all of us need to look at a world and say, "You know what? God didn't expect me to do it alone." And I need to jump in and embrace some synergy, both in discipleship, sanctification, as we come together, God uses that to make me more like Jesus, or uses me to help somebody else be more like Jesus, and that together, we become a glowing testimony of the goodness and grace of God to a hopeless world, and together, we get to share with them the hope of the gospel. So Peter finishes by saying to him be all dominion. A recognition of the fact that yes, both in place and purpose, I live under his authority. Dominion is a sphere as well as an authority that all dominion be to him. So that I choose to live as though Jesus is on the throne and I am a kingdom citizen. I ask you a simple question from a very simple text. In the midst of the life you are now living if you look at your life and the way you are responding who are you listening to? Let's pray. Father we thank you for the word of God. Thank you that it's so timely, that it's so apropos. Thank you that you never make light of life. It's not just a byproduct. It's not a product of chance or fate or circumstance or happenstance. Yes, it's a sin-cursed world. It's a fallen world. It's a rebellious kingdom. But you are God and you are good. And you approach us with grace and you call us to glory. Oh God, I pray today that you would help us to embrace our faith in a way that we internalize your truth and we live it out in response to the circumstances of life, acknowledging that you are God with a heart that says, no matter what comes today, I want to live In light of his dominion. God for those who are wrestling right now. Those who have said you know what I've actually lived as though there was no hope. God help them to cry out to you. Those who have sinned. They become angry. Some distant. Some destroying. God may they right now humble themselves under your mighty hand. Asking for your forgiveness and purposing. To seek forgiveness from others. Those who feel isolated today, oh God, may this passage of Scripture cause them to realize that there's a roaring lion that's telling them that they're alone. May they draw themselves to community, and God, may we all together work together for your glory, for the good of the church, and for the spread of the gospel, in Jesus' name.